Father in heaven, Lord, we have so much to be grateful for, to come before you in your presence, to have this opportunity to delight in your creation, to delight in the rest from that creation. Father, that we can spend this time with you, that we can worship you, that, that we have the scriptures, that we can sing and praise your name, Lord. These are privileges that none of us deserve. But Father, you have entrusted us with the gospel. You've entrusted us with this sacred message that the entire world needs to hear. And so Father, we pray as we begin this restoration series, that Father, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit like we've never been filled before. We have not come here for yesterday's blessings. We have not come here just to relive old experiences. Father, we want that fresh manner. We want that new experience. We want to, to feel the presence of your spirit in our hearts. We want to go forth in faith, Lord, knowing that heaven is behind us. Father, I personally ask that your spirit would use me this evening. Father, you told us in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 11, that they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And so as I share what you have done in my brief experience with you, Lord, I just pray that you would take your word, that you would send it forth to do that which it would, and that it would not return unto you void. This, Lord, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For those of you that, that aren't aware, um, if there is a remnant of my accent remaining, um, then the majority of what you can hear is probably from the United Kingdom, um, but I actually wasn't born there. I was born in the small little country next to it called the Republic of Ireland. I was born on the West Coast, um, and I moved to, to the United Kingdom when I was eight years old. This was in the year 1999, uh, which means that I'm 27 now. Uh, pray for me. Um, I, f I, feel, I feel a little slower than I'm used to. I feel like age is already grasping me by the neck, um, and I, I, I seek to, to overcome it, um, though I know it's essentially a losing battle. It's tough. But at the age of eight, um, myself, my brother, my younger brother, and my mom, we moved from Galway Island to London. And the reason why we moved was because um, there was a family led by a particular man who had made death threats um, to my family, especially to my mother. And at first we didn't take them seriously, but then later on we had no choice but to take them seriously. Um, I remember one time when I was really young, and this, this, this rather imposing gentleman just kind of stormed into my house um, and, and physically abused my mother. I think I was seven at the time. And... Um, I remember the next day, my mom just coming to me and saying, we're leaving, we're like, we're leaving everything behind. And I was like, well, what about my toys? You know, I'd built up such a collection um, in the past three or four years. It's like, well, what about these? Where do, where do they go? When do, when do we get them? And, and we just left everything. My brother was only two at the time. And we got on a boat, not a, not a paddle boat or a, you know, a row boat, but a, a cruise, if you would. Um, and we headed to London. And that's where I spent 
Um, all of the years from that point up until the age of maybe 24. And that is where uh, most of the experiences that I will share with you this evening uh, stem from. And I want to share first a verse from Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. You know the verse, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of, okay, maybe you don't know it. Thoughts of, thoughts of peace and not of evil and to give you an expected end. I was a Roman Catholic. I attended church faithfully every Sunday. Uh, my grandparents were rather militant in that we lived a literal stone's throw away from the Catholic church in the area. It was a big, um, one of those big, I wouldn't say it was a cathedral, but it, 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 was, it was a strange setup. The, church, the pulpit was in the middle and everyone kind of sat around it. Um, I guess it made, made good ways for, for the whole communion thing. Um, but but that's, that was really the extent of my religious experience. By the age of 13, I went to church because I had to. I went to church because my parent or my mom decided that I had to, because my grandma decided that I had to, because my grandfather decided that I had to. And if we didn't go, then there'd be trouble, especially if my brother or I kicked up a fuss and decided that we didn't want to go and eat paper, you know, for church. Um, we just did this not how we wanted to spend our Sunday mornings. And, and there would always be repercussions for those minor outbursts. Um, <laughs> yeah, not fun. So, around about the age of 13, I had convinced my mom that we needed to stop doing this. We'd moved from the motherland, as it were. And look, I, I remember in, you know, in a very logical way saying, Mom, why do we still go to church? And she was like, well, because we're Catholic. And I was like, oh, is, is that all Catholics do? We just, we just go to church on Sunday? That's that all we have to do? And she was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And I was like, okay, um, can we not? <laughs> maybe we don't, maybe we just stop that now. Um, because I don't know if you've realized, but we don't live with grandma and grandpa anymore. And so they're not really going to know. But here's the thing. I kid you not, for, for the five years from when we left Ireland to that point, my grandma would call every Sunday. She would call every Sunday at lunchtime just to ask, did you go to church today? And then we'd be like, yes. And she'd be like, great, have a good week, you know? <laughs> just like put the phone down and, oh, but how are you? How's things going, you know? How's England? How's your new life that you started overnight? Uh, but as long as you're going to church on Sunday, you should be fine. You should be fine. God will bless. So I convinced my mom that time that we should stop going. Church had just become a, a game, a literal game, in fact, because I used to go there with my video games because it was the only way that my mother could convince me to actually stay and remain quiet was if I had my Game Boy Advance. I know none of you know what that is. Um, oh, maybe. Uh, game, little Game Boy Advance just catching Pokemon, you know, um, you know the ir irony of catching ghost demons in the church. Um, when you think about it, it's not actually that strange. So, I convinced my mom that we should stop going, and, and, and she, went, she went for it. She was like, sure, and, and she was like, but what are we going to do when grandma calls? And I was like, yeah, you know, maybe we don't pick up. 
She's like, well, how, how, how often are we going to be able to do that before? She, she only calls on Sunday, so are we, just, are we just killing the relationship right here? Um, but but we, we eventually broke the news to her. She was rather disappointed. Um, we don't go to church anymore. And I had this, now, I can't say I was a believer in God, but I had this, this thought, at least, in my mind, that if God is real, at least at the age of 13, that it doesn't really matter. The only thing that God is concerned about is where am I on Sunday morning? That's God's main concern. Yes, there's, there's, there's billions of people on the earth, but, but God obviously has other things to do, but Sunday morning, He has a keen eye. Sunday morning, He wants to know, are you where you should be? And we weren't. My, my own religious experience pretty much stopped there. I went through school. I took my exams at the age of 16 because, um, fortunately for us, school stops at 16 years old in England, unless you want to continue it. Uh, but 16 is, is, is your 18. And I had a choice to make, and that choice was, was either to go into further education. I liked the idea of going into investigative journalism um, and hunting people down and finding out their stories. Or I had another opportunity to go to a soccer academy, um, which if I do mention again from this point forward, I'll call it a football academy uh, because that's what it is. Um, so <clears throat> just, so we, we, just so we're clear on that point. There's certain places where I'm willing to compromise, you know, that's not one. So, so I decided to, to go with the latter. I decided that I was going to try and become a footballer. The idea of seeing my name on the back of newspaper for good reasons or um, having people chant or even just know who I am was so appealing that I thought I'm willing to literally put my life on the line and end up as some deadbeat if it doesn't work out. Um, and then it didn't work out. And I guess I was a deadbeat. So, so that backfired. Essentially, this is what happened. I was 18 years old, and I was two years into this, um, I guess you could call it a, an internship at the, the football academy. And what they do is, considering you know, the importance of education, they pay for you to go to a private college um, so that if you do need something to fall back on, it's there. So I was studying nutrition and physiotherapy. Not as exciting as it sounds. Uh, sorry if you're a nutritionist. It's, imp it's important. I didn't say it wasn't important. It's just it's not that exciting. Um, although the announcements about the food, super exciting. So there's a balance in there somewhere. I was about 18 years old, two years in, about to finish up maybe two and a half, about to finish up my third year. And I remember leaving home. This was a pivotal point in my life, in fact. I remember leaving home and forgetting my, my bus pass. I needed to catch a bus and then three trains in order to get there. It was about a two and a half hour journey. And I, I left my bus pass at home. And so by the time I got back to my house, after I'd realized, I found a hole in my door. 
Um, someone had, had just pounded through, and, and I was like, oh no, I knew that no one else was home, so I knew no one was hurt, but I thought they must have stolen all of our things. So I run inside, and I look around the house, and it seems like everything is there. I run upstairs, and I'm looking around, looking under the bed, looking in all the secret stashes, um, you know, all of like my mom's fake jewelry was, and that kind of thing, and, um, and everything was there. Everything was there. I was like, Wow. I feel like I was burgled by a blind man, you know, like he got in and then didn't know what to do. And so I called the police anyways. I said, listen, someone broke into my house. I need you to come and check it out. So they came, they done the whole fingerprint thing, you know, CSI and all that stuff. And they're like, well, if, we, if, 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 if we're able to find him, we'll catch him. Leave it with us, sure. And I was like, you know, I, I don't feel as safe in the house anymore. And the policeman said these fateful words, listen. He said, listen, young man. And he, was, he must have been about six foot seven or at least he looked that big, uh, and he was, he, was, he was big. And he said to me, listen, young man, don't worry. Nobody is dumb enough to come back twice. Nobody's dumb enough to try and rob the same house twice. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know anyone that dumb. So exactly one week later, <laughs> I forgot my bus pass. So I went home, and this time the whole door was just completely smashed. And I went inside, and lo and behold, somebody was that dumb. Um, except this time they managed to take everything. Like, clean the house out. The only things they didn't take were the things that didn't fit out the door. Bed, sofa. Um, they may have left the TV, because that was pretty big as well. I remember running upstairs into my bedroom looking for my computer, and it was gone. I was three weeks away from finishing school, and the way that that particular course worked was the entire semester was just coursework. You just hand it in at the end to show what you study. There's no exam, there's nothing like that. And it was all saved onto my computer. And I was like, oh, I have a plan. I had a plan at least. Back up hard drive, right? If it's that important, you back it up on a hard drive. So I went into the drawer, pulled it out, hard drive was gone. But I was like, no, 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 you haven't got me yet. I've got the backup hard drive to the backup hard drive. Can you say amen? amen. <laughs> but that was gone too. Yeah. And that's when I knew that the person that, that, that burgled my house was someone that knew me. Because there was only like three or four people that knew where the backup hard drive to the backup hard drive was. That was privileged information. Um, it was under my mattress. <laughs> so I went into school the next day, and I explained to them, I was like, listen, my house was burgled, and uh, they stole my coursework. And, and I remember my teacher looking at me saying, wow. What a coincidence that on the day that you're meant to hand in your entire semester's work, that your house was burgled. And I was like, you know, I thought that you might react like this, so I brought the crime report letter. <laughs> and I don't know how little I knew about the whole judicial system at that time, but he looked at it and said, I don't care. If you don't have anything to hand in today, you have no grade. And so I was like... Ooh, 
And I just took his word for it and walked away. And that was the end of that experience. So I was 18, almost 19 years old, and this dream had completely fallen apart. And I began to think, well, what next? What do, what, what do I do now? I mean, essentially, I have no real, communi- um, no real qualifications. If I find a job, it's going to be some kind of deadbeat job just to make ends meet. And that's not really what I thought the plan was for my life. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you. I know the thoughts that I have towards you. At this time in my life, I was also in a relationship with a young lady. Um, It was, I would say, maybe my first adult relationship, if you can call that at the age of 18, an adult relationship. And we, we dated for, I guess, about six months. And then it got a bit much for me. I was just like, okay, this is, this, is, this is too much. And the girl that I was with had some, she had some baggage, should I say. Um, unfortunately for her, her mother committed suicide um, when she was, I think, maybe six, seven, less than ten for sure. And she left a note. And in the note, she only mentioned how much she loved her sister. I don't, know, I don't know what that would do to me, but I think it would mess me up. And so she, she kind of carried those insecurities through no fault of her own um, with her into the beginning of her adult life. And the whole relationship just got a little bit messy for me. And I wasn't, I wasn't ready at that age to commit um, to something very serious so... So I broke it off, and I told her it wasn't working. Um, as in, a, in a nice way, you know, I didn't just drop her. Um, I tried to be a gentleman about it, if that's one thing that my mother really instilled in, in me. And uh, she didn't take it too well. And so then what happened was, a few months later, I receive a phone call, and it's her. And I didn't know it was her because I deleted her number because, you know, new start and all that kind of stuff. And so I picked up, I was like, hello. And all I heard was, hi. And my heart was just like, oh. I was like, hey. And then she went on to explain to me that she was in Knightsbridge. Anyone here ever been to London? You ever been to Knightsbridge? That's a shame. It's a really nice place in West London. It's where they had that massive shopping mall, Harrods. Um, I only went in there once. First time I went in there, I saw a chandelier for 25000 and I knew it wasn't the place for me. Um, but maybe it's the place for you. Uh, probably not, though, right? And so her grandma actually owned a room in a hotel. How does that work? I don't know. Um, directly across the road from this huge shopping mall, Harrods. And she called me, and she said, I'm at the hotel, and I knew what that meant. She's like, I'm at the hotel, and I was like, Okay. cool? She was like, I'm sitting on the edge of the window. And at that point, I felt like I could make a smart comment, like, you know, that's a bit dangerous, but I didn't. 
I felt like this was a little bit more serious of a situation than I had first thought it was. And I was like, oh, okay. And she said, so here's the deal. Um, we're going we're gonna to get back together or I'm going to jump. Tricky, huh? I'm going to pause the story right there and come back. At this point in my life, I had began to change. I began to change. I began, I, I began to, to, how do I put this? Regress. I began to imitate my social circle a little bit more closely than I would have liked. I had three really good friends, um, all of which have spent since this time uh, prolonged periods of time in prison. I had three good friends and we just kind of did everything together. But in the back of my mind, I knew that these guys weren't good for me. I knew that the kind of things that they did when we weren't together, um, just, it just wasn't going to always work. And I had got to the point now since, you know, the whole football thing had stopped where I was getting kind of desperate for money and my friends were really into, you know, the kind of street corner drug dealing thing. And I was a little bit intimidated by that, um, especially because they were all black and I wasn't. And so naturally you kind of stand out in those scenarios. Um, so, so that was a little bit intimidating to me. Because, I mean, if someone saw me do it, they wouldn't take them a long time to find me. Coincidentally, I was the only white person in my school. Um, so, again, if they just showed up at the school, there I was, almost glowing. <laughs> I began to get involved in their business. I wasn't standing on the street corners, but I had agreed that I would be the kind of the kind of Home Depot for the drugs and, and keep everything you know, in my sock drawer and, and they would come and we'd, we'd hang out, we'd play some computer games and then after that, you know, I'd give them the stuff, they'd go out, sell it, I'd get a very, very small cut um, and, and that would kind of keep me financially from having to go and find an actual job. And I realized that I was becoming, over time, just over a few months, mind you, this isn't years, but even though I'd, I'd spent many years with them and kind of kept a line, I, I began to compromise. I was keeping their drugs in my house, in my mother's house, mind you. I started to, to get involved more in their lifestyle. Um, I started to go to clubs and all of this kind of thing with them. And it was very, very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable for me. But in actual fact, as, in, as uncomfortable as it was, the more it happened, the more normative it became. The more I realized that I could, in fact, maybe fit into this kind of life. But deep down, I was broken. Deep down, I realized that I was becoming the kind of person that I hated when I was younger. I was becoming the kind of young man that I would walk past in the street and say to myself, I hope I'm never like that guy. Before my very eyes. I was in a dark place, mentally. So I pick up this phone call and she's sitting on the edge of the window 
and she's telling me that we're getting back together or she's going to take a tumble. I thought about it and then I told her to jump. I said, yeah, we're not getting back together. So jump. At that point, the, the phone cut off and I put my phone to charge and I went to bed. And I remember this experience extremely clearly. I remember waking up the next day and just going about my day. And I remember come home, coming home and, and just, just going about my day at home and, and the day came to an end and another day came and another day came. And, and I kid you not, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about it. I, I, I just didn't care. About three or four days after the experience, I remember the thought just, just coming, just falling on me like a ton of bricks, saying, Dean, do you know if she's still alive? And I thought to myself, no. No, actually, I don't. No phone call since, no text message, no, hey, by the way, I'm still around. I don't know what brought this, maybe in hindsight I do, feeling. But I remember sitting down on my bed that night thinking, hold on, who am I? Looking back on the previous years of my life, I, I looked and briefly analyzed the kind of young man that I had become, and I really honestly couldn't recognize myself. I was like, hold on, wait. What's in my drawer right now? Where are my friends going tonight? What did I say on that phone call? She didn't jump. Amen? But I nearly did. Because after I'd come to that realization, after, I'd, after it had struck me that I really was A waste. I sat on the edge of my window. Except I didn't have anyone to call. And I sat there. I didn't jump either. <laughs> but I remember, and this sounds, this, this was, it looks and it was as strange as it sounds. I remember just getting into my bathtub fully clothed with no water and just staying there. And just looking out that windowsill that I'd been sitting on and just looking up at the sky. And I think that night was the first night I ever prayed. That night I said these words, God, if you're there, I need help. So I eventually left the bathtub, went downstairs to my computer and went on to Facebook. And you know the little chat thing on the, on the Facebook, you know, Facebook chat, bottom right-hand corner, click it, all of those people that you don't know come up, <laughs> right? So annoying. 
Anyways, back then, Facebook was actually for people that you knew. Novel idea. And I remember looking through it just thinking, I need to talk to someone. I need to talk to someone. I don't need to tell anyone what I was really going through, but I just needed, I just needed some, some normal conversation, you know? So I'm scrolling, and I saw the name of this, this young lady, and I, I clicked it. I said, hey, you know, just hi. And we had history. We dated when, uh, when we were much younger, when I was about 15 years old, um, that young. I think she was about 13. We had dated for a while, a couple months maybe. <laughs> hey, you laugh, but at 15 years old, that's significant. Like, that's, that's a genuine percentage of your life, you know? Three months, that's a quarter of a year. You've only had 15 of those, you know? So I messaged her, and I said, hey. This is one of, my, one of my favorite conversations I've ever had in my life. I said, hey. And then what do you think she responded? Hey. Okay, let's well, start. I said, how are you? What do you think she said? I'm fine. And then she said, what about you? And then I said, I'm fine. Now what do you say? <laughs> right? Where do you go from there? You're fine, I'm fine, great, everything's fine. Right? Like, like how do you progress the conversation from fine? I mean, if you're fine, then you don't need anything, right? I'm apparently fine, even though I'm definitely not fine. <laughs> Literally the opposite to the definition of fine at that time. And so we began, you know, small talk. And then she told me that she had to come off the computer because her dad needed to use the computer. I was like, oh, haven't heard that one before, you know. But thanks for your time, cheerio, mate, you know. Um, I never actually spoke like that. And then she's like, hey, if, if you want to talk, send me your number. Okay, here's my number. And she actually called. Like, if you've ever had one of those online conversations, you know that like 10 times out of nine, it doesn't end in a phone conversation. <laughs> she called. She called and this must have been about 11, 11 p.m. And I kid you not, we didn't come off the phone until about 9.30. Yeah, like the whole way around the clock. You know? We didn't come off the phone until about 9.30. I remember, I remember my little brother waking up and being shocked that I wasn't already awake um, because he had this, you know, he would just sleep forever. And so he got out of bed, he's like, he's like, he's like, Dean, you need to go to school, you need to go to school. I was still on the phone. Right, I, just, I just had the phone kind of under my ear, sleeping on it, so the pillow covered it. And, and I just had my eyes closed, you know. He's like, Dean, Dean. I mean, I mean, it gets to the point where you shake someone, and if they're not waking up, it's kind of concerning. But he, just, he just left me there um, and, and went to school. And then my mom came, and she was like, Dean, you need, to, you need to get up. And I'm still on the phone at this time. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really feeling it. She's like, yeah, you need, to, you need to get out of bed. I don't know what you're still doing here, da -de da And so eventually around about 9.30, we came off the phone. And the conversation ended something like, hey, you know, if you want to kind of, you know, 
catch up sometime, then let me know when you're free. And if I'm free when you're free, then maybe we can do something together when we're both free. And about a week later, we met up and we went, I think we went to watch a movie in a place that looked shockingly like this. And <laughs> I, I really like it, by the way. Uh, great venue. Um, and then we started a relationship shortly afterwards. And that relationship, I think, just went a few months again, before, or maybe just a single month. Um, I wasn't as bad at this as it sounds, but about a single month, and then I got a phone call, and she said, hey, listen, my parents know. And I was like, ooh, that's a tough one, um, because her parents found out about the last time as well. And I distinctly remember one time walking her to her house, and then her dad seeing that, and then getting into his car, and then chasing me down the street. Um, in fact, me and my friend. Luckily, there's roads where cars just can't go. So I, I lived. Amen. And so she said, my parents want to meet you. I was 19 years old, right? Literally a fully-fledged man by that point. Okay. <laughs> no, you're right to laugh. And, and I distinct, I remember, I remember this as clear as day. I remember one day being in the park that separated our houses and I got a phone call that day and it was from her dad. This was maybe a week after he had chased me down the street and he had terrible, terrible English. And he basically told me to leave his daughter alone because we were both too young. And if I was still interested in about three years' time, then we could talk. So she says, my parents have found out, this was later on, my parents have found out and they want to meet you. And so I thought, yeah, sure, I can do that, you know, I can do that. I'll show up, I'll come. I said, yeah, I'll be there, what time? Seven, okay, 7 p.m., I show up at the house, knock on the door, walk in. It's great stuff happening here, great stuff. I walk in and the room has been organized for this particular event. Um, I remember it as clear as day. It's a small room, small houses in England, small room. And there was a piano which had already taken up enough space. And then there were two two-seater sofas. Two two-seater sofas. And there were already four people in the room. Right? And it, what, they weren't like squeezing over. It was like comfortably like on the sofa, feet up, chilling out. And, and I kind of walked in. And I was kind of introduced, like, hello, hello, hello. And then I noticed, almost in the middle of the room, was a piano stool, like this tall. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, guess, I guess this is for me. And I kind of sat on the piano stool. And there, I had the conversation. I had the conversation with two parents that didn't really speak English, okay, which was difficult enough. Um, the dad said, something that just really, really struck me. He said, I respect you. I thought to myself, really? You, okay. He's like, I remember calling you three years ago and telling you if you were still interested in my daughter to come back in three years time. And I was sitting there in my head just like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was difficult. 
but I made it. So here I am. It was a praise the Lord moment, but I didn't know what that was at the time. And so he was like, I respect you because, because you, you persevered or you hung in there, you waited, something to, something to that degree. And I was just there, just kind of, you know, riding my luck at this point. And this was after her mom had given me this, this very awkward speech. Her mom's English was even worse than her dad's. And she just kind of cried her way through it because she thought I was you know, going to just, just completely change her daughter's life and, and make her all kinds of horrible stuff. And so after that, her dad said this to me. He said, if you want to be a part of my daughter's life, then you're going to have to go to church with her once. And I thought to myself, okay. This guy doesn't know. <laughs> I was Catholic. <laughs> I went to the most boring of churches every single week. One service? Count me in. When are we going? Friday night. That's a bit strange, but okay. <laughs> Let's go with it. So Friday night, there I am. I show up in West London, Northwest London. I walk into the church. It was just like being at school. I was the only white guy in the church. If you've ever been to England, um, you know that the Adventist church is pretty much like 125% African-American and, and Caribbean, literally. Um, so, well, well, you know, African, Caribbean, and probably some, some American influence in there as well. In fact, judging by the music, there was a heavy American influence in there. And so, anyone ever seen Sister Act? Surely you haven't, but if you have, then you kind of know what it was like. And so I was just sitting there, and everyone's just, you know, getting their praise on, or whatever you call it. And, and I was just like, this is, uh, this is different to what I'm used to, but, you know, there's not too much time left. I'm sitting there with my Muslim friend, and who's also it's his first time, and, you know, we're just having a ball, really. And, and then it gets to testimonies. They transition from the music, and it gets to testimonies. And there was a woman there, and she was like, you know, church, old woman, maybe at least late 80s. I just need to praise the Lord. She's standing up. Kind of looked like she was sitting down, but she was standing up. And she was like, I, church, need to testify today because you all know that I have had cancer and, and we've been praying and now it's gone. Praise the Lord. Amen. And the whole church was just like, oh, praise the Lord, sister. Praise the Lord. The cancer is gone. Hallelujah. And all this kind of stuff. And I was just there like, Really? All you did was pray, and it was gone. Because there's many people out there with cancer, you know. They, would, they could use that kind of information. I was like, are, are you sure that's all it took? So I'm already, at this time, seriously doubtful. And then there was another lady that just compounded my doubt. She stood up, and she said, Church, you know that I was laid off from work a couple weeks ago, and I don't really have anything to fall back on because my husband left me. And so I was walking down the road, and I was like, Lord, please, I need you to provide for my family because we don't have food. And as I was walking, I found a 50-pound note on the floor. And I just had to praise God because I was able to get groceries for the week. And, and I was just like, I understand this. It's a setup. <laughs> Elaborate stories have been concocted because they saw a white guy go into the church and they knew that he wasn't one of them. And so they went, boom, evangelism mode, bring out the stories, and we'll manage to convince him that God does all of these wonderful, cool things. It's like, yeah, right, as if I'm going to fall for that. 
And then there was one more testimony. The last testimony of the night was given by the piano player. And he was sitting, the piano was kind of elevated up in the corner. And he, was a, he, was not, he wasn't a, piano, a pianist by, by trade. He was a computer software engineer. And he had this big job to do during this week. And so the whole company was kind of sent away so he could get it all done. And it came to Friday and he was trying to finish up, but he was behind. And so he did the best that he could. And he noticed that the sun was setting, you know, within an hour or two. And he said he had to make a decision at that point whether he was going to just lock up and go home to keep the Sabbath. And I'd read something about that on Wikipedia. And, or he was just going to stay, work, finish the job. He felt like he could get it done if he worked a few hours into the night. And, and then that would be that. He had to make that decision. And I thought, well, it's a very obvious decision. If you need the money, then you work. No? I mean, I wasn't exactly speaking from experience. But I was like, if you need that money, you should stay and do your job. Anyways, the brother said that he locked up. And he went home and he told his wife, listen, honey, I didn't finish the job. I don't think I'm going to get paid for it because they're going to come in tomorrow expecting that it's all done and it's not going to be done. And so she was like, well, let's pray. And I was like, now that woman, that sounds like a Christian. Because if that was another woman, game over. <laughs> you came home without the bread. Right? And they had a one-year-old child. I was like, this brother is insane. He goes into work on Sunday and he says he walks in to explain himself and the manager catches him before he does it, walks right, gets right in his face and says, if we ever have any more problems, you're going to be the first person we came to, we come to. And he was like, excuse me? It's like, yeah, everything works great. Came in Saturday morning, booted everything up, worked perfectly. Thank you. Here's a check. And he took it and he said, great, you have my number. He went home and he said, church, that night God worked out a miracle so that I could keep the Sabbath. And I thought to myself, okay, cancer woman, definitely a no-no. 50-pound -no. woman, probably not. This guy sounds ridiculous. He didn't receive some miraculous healing. He didn't do some noble act, at least in my eyes, as an unconverted young man who knew nothing about spiritual things. He looked ridiculous. He, was, he would have been off-putting to me that he, he didn't work for his family so that he could work for God. In my mind, that just didn't make sense. But I left that, that, that church service that night with the strangest feeling as though God literally said to me, Dean, you're going to be a part of this church. I thought to myself, that's insane. Where did that thought come from? There's absolutely no way I could ever be a part of that church. So anyways, there was a few events happening. And the closer we got to these kind of, you know, church services and stuff, the more I felt a feeling that I needed to make sure that God wasn't real. I needed to make sure. So I bought myself a Bible. I went on to Amazon and I bought a Bible because the people at that church that I went to said that the only version of the Bible that you read is King James Version. So I was like, I can do that. You know, King James was one of our kings. So <laughs> I, I, I've got that. You know, I studied Shakespeare at school. I, I'm, I'm on the way. And so I got a King James Bible, got it on Amazon. It was £12.99. And I like Amazon. They deliver stuff really quick, except this time they didn't deliver it quick. 
And they told me it was going to come the next day. And I remember sitting by my door on the stairs waiting. Because I had to wait. I had to make sure that I was the one that received the Bible. Because I was Catholic. All right? We don't read Bibles. We've got someone else to read Bibles for us. Right? So there's no Bible in my house. And if there was, it would be like, how in the world did this get here? So I had to wait. I waited and I missed work. The first day I missed work. Um, it wasn't a great job anyways. But I missed work and the Bible didn't come. So the next day I knew if it didn't come today, if it didn't come yesterday, it was definitely going to come today. So I'm sitting by the stairs. I know what time the postman comes. And so I'm waiting, 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 waiting. Doesn't come. Missed that work. Missed that day of work as well. Now my boss told me if I missed three days of work without even contacting them, and I don't know why I didn't contact them. I'm just dumb. But... If I miss the third day, then I'd lose my job. So the third day comes, and I'm sitting there, I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting, and it's still not coming, and I'm not hearing the postman's footsteps walk past my door. We have letterboxes in England where you put the post in the house so no one can just walk past your mailbox and take the stuff out. Um, and so I was there waiting, and around about 11.30, I hear those footsteps, big boots, and it flies in the letterbox. Right on the floor. I grab it, look at my watch, it's 11.30, I start work at 12, and work is an hour away. Um, and so I quickly take my Bible upstairs, it's hard to call it my Bible at this point, I take the Bible, put it upstairs under my mattress, you know, safe place, and then, and then I run to the train station to get to work. I get to work, beg and plead my manager, please let me keep my job, please let me keep my job, and he did. And then so I get home and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going to make sure that God isn't real. And so every night around about midnight when I'm sure that everyone was asleep, I would take out this Bible and I would kind of pull my bed covers over my head, attach my little book light, and I just started reading through. I started reading through the Gospels because that's where I knew that Jesus popped up. So I was like, if he shows up there, then that's probably the place to start. And if I can prove, if I can see that Jesus was just a myth, then everything else should just fall apart. And so I'm reading through Matthew, and I think the next night I'd finished Matthew, and I was like, oh, okay, um, let's go to Mark. So I go into Mark, and I'm learning these as I go along. It wasn't like, let's go to Mark. It was like, oh, the next page is Mark. <laughs> so so I'm, reading, I'm reading through Mark, quick, quick gospel, read through that. Then I read through Luke, and then I read through John. And by the time I get to the end of John, I'm literally sitting in my bed thinking, oh, my days. If this guy is real, if this man that they're speaking of, if this Jesus is an actual historical figure, everything changes. Because the stuff I read blew my mind. I'd never heard of that stuff before. And so my girlfriend at the time and her sister, more, more so her sister, they're like, hey, we're going to start you know, little Bible studies at our house on Wednesday night. Come over, there's food. It's kind of how they probably got a lot of you guys to come. So come over, there's food. And it works all the time. It's a great plan. It's a great plan. I went, and we're there, and we started having Bible studies. We started having Bible studies on, like, Daniel chapter 2. Now, I know that you know all about Daniel chapter 2, but, but Catholics don't know about Daniel chapter 2, right? We don't even know about Daniel chapter 1, but... <laughs> We didn't, I didn't know about Daniel chapter 2, and so we're there, and we're looking, you know, about, you know, the big image, and the gold, and the silver, and the bronze, and all this kind of, it's really cool, and how everything perfectly lined up with time, and I was there just like, why haven't you guys told anyone else? <laughs> like, this is really important stuff that's happening right here. Why does no one else know? 
I'm like, this just makes sense. Everything lines up. History lines up. Geography lines up. Politics lines up. Everything makes sense. And then we moved on and we started studying the sanctuary. I remember this lesson so clearly. We made a sanctuary out of things, common things that you find in the home. All right, so we built it, you know, glue and, you know, toilet roll and all that kind of stuff. And we built a sanctuary and, and we walked through. It wasn't that big, but we kind of, we had these little characters and we walked through the, the plan of salvation. And the more I studied these things, the more I was like, why, why have I never known about these things before? Then they invited me to a church service. And I went. And there was these two young preachers. And they were about 23, 24 years old at the time I was 19. They looked exactly the same as me. Well, not exactly the same as me. Um, because, again, I was the only white person in the church. But, but what really gripped me, catch this, wasn't the things that they were saying. In fact, a lot of the things that they were preaching, I literally could not understand. I was like, I don't get it. I don't get it. Like, what are they talking about? But what I did get was that they believed it. I could see in the way that they were sharing the message that they believed it. And for me, the concept that there were 23-year-olds and 24-year-olds out there in the middle of London that actually believed in Jesus Christ and were trying to live for him was mind-blowing. And at the end of that series, I remember they made a call to come to, the forward, come to the front if you wanted special prayer. And I remember going to the front and standing there. And one of them was like, I want to make an appeal. If, if you guys want to get baptized, you want to give, you you, you give your life to the Lord, then raise your hand. And I was thinking, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No way. There is no way in the world that I'm raising my hand at this time. It's not going to happen. And then I opened my eyes. My hand was in the air. I kid you not. In fact, I didn't even realize. I was just there. And then this person came and gave me a, like a card. And I was like. <laughs> and I took the card and they were like, fill it out. Just, you know, just tick baptism because that's why you put your hand up. I remember looking at it thinking, no, no, I didn't want to do that. And so I, I didn't fill out the card. And then I went to the next service and there was, there was, this, there was this another, another church in West London and they were having this two-week series where this American lady pastor came over and this, this woman could preach. She was fire. And she was preaching and then at the end of that week she made a call for baptism and this time I went forward and put my hand up. I had heard everything that I needed to hear up to that point and I was like, I am ready to give the Lord my life. And so I went home that day and I went to my mom. She had remarried at this point. And I, I said to my mom, I said, I'd like to meet with you and my stepdad in the front room. I've got something really important to tell you. She was like, okay. She probably thought that I got someone pregnant or that I was going to jail or something along those lines. But for them, it would be something far worse. I sat them down and I said, okay, I need to tell you something. They were like, what is it? I said, I'm getting baptized. And my mom was like, already did that like I have pictures you know with my wet little forehead you know she's like you already did that and I was like no no mom I'm gonna get baptized into a different church and she said no you're not and I was like it wasn't a question I didn't say that obviously because evidently again I'm still here but I, I was thinking to myself I was thinking no I am and, and one thing I did say out loud, which I'm incredibly fortunate to not 
um, have had to regret is I remember when she said, you're not getting baptized into a different church. It just came out. I just said, Lord, help this woman. <laughs> and maybe she didn't really catch it, but I said it and then I kind of, I closed my eyes as well. I went straight into like Nehemiah prayer, you know, and, and at the end of that conversation, which lasted about an hour, she said, so what do I wear to this baptism thing? Whoa, the Lord answered my prayer. Now, my stepdad had said that he would die before he goes into another church. And I was like, okay, fine. I mean, speaking to my mom, you know, you're just kind of. (laughs) (laughs) And the following week, I got baptized. This was in, this was October the 9th, 2010 in Chiswick Seventh-day Adventist Church. I got baptized. My mom was there and She was crying as I was being dipped into the pool. And then, you know how you you, you find the Lord and then you have what they call the honeymoon period? You know, where you're just just walking on clouds, you know? There's just angels there at your every bidding just holding you up. And yeah, I didn't get that part. Almost immediately, my life got incredibly difficult. One month later, um, my girlfriend's mother sent her to Brazil. Like, not for a holiday. Like, sent her for good. Because she feared that myself and another gentleman, that we had got baptized just to be with her daughters. And she was scared. So she sent them to Brazil. A little bit drastic, I know. But... She sent them to Brazil. And at that point, I realized something. At that point, I realized that it was make or break time. I needed to know for sure that the decision that I had made was actually one that I had made for the right reasons. And now this rock that I had in my life was gone and I was just kind of plunged into the church and I was like, I don't know what to do here. I don't know how this works. I don't know if I can find my way, but I'm just going to give it a go. I'm just going to go for it because, because I really do believe that Jesus wants to work in my life. And I really do believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church is God's last day church. So, so I'm here. I'm in. And I tried to just immerse myself. Started preaching and all that kind of stuff. About a year into it, I was reading Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I read it so many times before. That was one passage of the Bible that I remember reading as a Catholic. I remember sitting down thinking, our Father. God is a Father. Now in my mind, and this this doesn't make a lot of sense, but in my mind, God the Father and God the Son were very different. 
Right? God the Son, Jesus Christ, was the one who went to the cross and died for my sins and he was loving and caring and kind and compassionate and patient and all he wanted was for good things to happen in my life. But the Father, the Father was this incredibly judgmental figure. He was the one that was going to impose the end time judgment on me. He was the one that was going to decide whether I got into heaven or whether I had to be sent to hell. And so in my mind, there was this picture of God wanting to kind of trample on me, but Jesus holding him up, saying, no, forgive him of his sins. My blood pleads for him. I had this very different conception of what the father was actually like, and it took a while before I realized that the reason why was because of what I just thought all fathers were like. Because I didn't have one growing up. It was just my mom. Just my mom. And this is really where Christianity became, became real to me. There's a verse in Psalms chapter 68 that says in verse 5 that God is a father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. My mom was about 23 years old when she was at a house party and she was drinking a lot, she was taking a lot of drugs, she was completely out of it, and she was engaged. And it got to about, I think, two o'clock in the morning, and her fiancé said, hey, it's time to go. And she was like, no, I'm not going, I'm staying. Well, he was like, well, I'm leaving, because I've got to go to work in the morning, so you're leaving. She was like, no, I'm not going. Okay, so he went to his best friend, said, you take her. Whenever she's done, make sure she gets home safely. He's like, sure. It gets, I think, to about five in the morning. She's still there. And so his friend comes over and says, hey, it's time to go. So she's like, okay, just out of it. He gets into the car. And the way that this place looked was basically, she was at a house party over here. There was this really big field um, that you had to kind of drive around. And then on the other side was my grandma's house, her mom's house. And so she's in the car and they're driving, and they're driving, and driving, and driving, and driving. And then she realizes that she doesn't recognize where she is. And then he pulls over and see this isolated place. And he takes out a bottle of vodka and he leans over into the back seat and smashes it over her head. And then he proceeds to drag her out of the car and into this nearby field, and then he raped her. And that was 27 years ago. My biological father raped my mother, and that's how I was conceived. And the crazy thing about this story is that I actually knew this from when I was 10 years old. I'd overheard my mom speaking to my auntie about it. And it broke me. It broke me because at 10 years old, the thought came to my mind, oh man, I'm a mistake. I wasn't meant to be. 
I knew enough at that age to understand how things worked. I was like, people, people don't come from rape. That means, like, rape, the definition of rape is literally that it is unwanted. And I'd never dealt with that. I just grew up, and it wasn't even a maybe, maybe not. It was no, 100% sure I knew that I was a mistake. And so, and so naturally, that affected how I saw the world. Because anything that didn't work out the way that it should have in my life, I always went back to that. I always said, well, the reason why this, wasn't, that the reason why this didn't work is because I wasn't meant to be here in the first place. That's why my house can get burgled and I can, I can lose my education overnight. That's why I can join a soccer academy and tear my hamstring three times in one and a half years. That's why I can enter into this relationship with this young lady who decides that she's, she might even commit suicide if we don't get back together. And I looked through all of these things. I was like, it makes sense. All of these things are happening to me because I'm a kind of glitch. Wasn't meant to be. I lived with that thought for nine years, from the age of 10 to the age of 19. And it was only at the age of 19, 20 when, when it really hit me. As I'm reading Matthew chapter 6, Our Father. Our Father. And I told God, I said, God, there's something that I haven't given you yet. There's hatred in my heart. Deep hatred that had penetrated its way through my life. And I moved from reading, to the, Lord, reading the Lord's Prayer to the parable where Jesus is teaching Peter about what forgiveness really is. And you remember the line, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. If you want to be forgiven, you have to forgive others. That, that was the moment that I became a Christian. It wasn't even at baptism. Yeah, sure, I got the title. But it was at that moment when the rubber hit the road. It was at that moment where I had to decide if these choices that I had most recently made were actually going to be the one that governed my decisions for the rest of my life because there was no way I was going to be able to continue and excel in this relationship with God if deep down I was going to have hatred for someone else. And sure, that is a very heinous crime and sin. But am I not a sinner also? How is he, he going to receive pardon at the foot of the cross? How am I going to receive pardon at the foot of the cross? So how different are we really? I had to make a decision. One of the hardest decisions that I've ever had to make. I don't know if you understand, I grew up telling myself from the age of 10 that if I ever met my biological father that I was going to be the one that killed him. My very earliest memory is of three years old when I walked into my front room because I heard my mother screaming as my father was on top of her, stabbing her multiple times over because she had taken him to court over the case. These were the pictures that I had of my father. 
And then I was told that my father is suddenly God and the two images didn't match. So I had to make a decision. Am I going to allow these principles of Christianity to actually come in and change the decisions that I'm going to make? Or am I going to live with my hatred? Now, I've never met my father, even to this day. But where there used to be a hatred, there's a peace. And I can't explain that. But I know in my heart that if I do find myself in the same room as that man, I may lunge at him with a sword, but it's a different kind of sword. I'd like to see him in heaven, maybe. As crazy as that is. If Christianity isn't really going to go deep, I mean, what's the point? Why live a half-Christian life only to go where everyone else is going in the end? I learned something since. It's no mistakes. You can say amen if you want. There's no mistakes. There's no one on the foot of this planet that does not have a purpose. There's no one that, there's no glitches. No one that was unplanned regardless of how they were conceived. For I know the thoughts that I have towards you. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. I don't care if you came from evil. I have thoughts of peace towards you. To give you an expected end. To lead you on this path. No mistakes. No accidents. There's no accidents with Jesus. There is only intentionality. There is only purpose. And you may not have found out what that purpose is, but just trust because he'll show you when the time is right. I lost everything when I accepted Christ. My parents kicked me out of my home. I was homeless for maybe a day. (laughs) You go homeless for a day and see if you're still laughing. (laughs) Christians took me in. Actual Christians that I I hadn't even really met before. Get a phone call from my friend, hey, Dean, I've been praying for you. Is everything okay? I'm like, funny you say that. Uh, I'm homeless. Parents have kicked me out because they didn't didn't like the choices that I was making. They didn't like that I wasn't eating their food anymore. They didn't like that I wasn't speaking the way they spoke anymore. They didn't like that I wasn't, you know, bringing some certain people back to my home. They didn't like all of these things. And so they said, you have to choose between your family or God. And I said, okay, when do I leave? Let's go. I'm out. I'm into this relationship. Because as grateful as I am for my mother to have gone through everything that she went through and still raise me, there's someone else that went through even more for me. There's someone else that knew me before I was even in that womb. There's someone that, that will know me when all of these things pass away. And that's who I have a life debt to. Lost my friends. They all thought I went crazy. One of them became this really strange Muslim. Um, So the feeling was mutual. But lost them. 
Lost my job because I was working in a place where I was selling alcohol. Couldn't do that anymore. I didn't lose that job. I walked away from it. But the words of Christ ring true even still. If any man, if any man lose his house, if any man lose his mother or his father, his sons, his daughters, if any man loses anything for my sake and for the gospel's sake, then it shall be restored unto him. Does anyone know how much? A hundredfold. A hundredfold. And I've done the math. It makes sense. I lost my family, gained a hundred more. Lost my job, gained a hundred more. Lost my friends, gained a hundred more. There's never been sacrifice. There's never been something that I've had to let go of or something to give up that he hasn't just completely restored with, with something even greater. What can I possibly hold on to? There is purpose. Trust me, you may be sitting there saying, oh yeah, it worked out for you. No, no, no. There's purpose. The young lady that was giving me Bible studies is, is my wife today. You worked that one out. Her sister is here as well. Her parents allow them to come back from Brazil. Can you say Amen. And now I have a new family. Can you do me a favor? Can you pray for my mom? It's tough. It's really tough. But I know that God doesn't just have a purpose for me. There's a purpose for her too. God is a father to the fatherless. A husband to all widows. Knows every hair on our head, every thought that's ever come to our mind, every action that we've ever done. He's been there. The greatest decision I ever made was to accept Jesus Christ. And not just to accept Jesus Christ, but to pledge that every day I was going to try and live my life like him. And fail every day so that I could just depend on him more. I just want to encourage you guys tonight. As bleak as it looks, as dark as that hole that you're in may be, there is hope. There is restoration. What's beautiful is that God doesn't just restore us to what we were. He restores us and renews us every day until we are just like him. Friends, I don't believe that there's anything that God has done for me that he can't do for you. I don't believe there's any sore or wound that he's healed up that yours, if it's anything like mine or completely different, that yours can't experience the same. If you haven't yet, I plead with you, give Jesus a chance. And if you're stuck in this lopsided relationship where sometimes you're in and sometimes you're out, listen, you're already in a better place. You're already in a better place. I wish that I grew up where most of you grew up.
Yet so many people think, oh, I wish that I had your experience. I wish I started off in the world so that I could then come into church and realize just how good Jesus is. Listen to me. You don't have to experience sin to really feel grateful for righteousness. If you're here, it's because this is where God wants you to be. You don't need to be out there. You don't need to go through those fires and those trials. God has a plan for each and every single one of us in this room. Can you imagine if we just all surrendered to that plan? Can you imagine if we just all said here and now, Jesus, today, my life, yours. No accidents, no mistakes, only purpose, only design. I pray that you'd experience that in your own life as well. Father in heaven, help us, Lord, not to be afraid. Not to be afraid of truly letting you in. Help me, Father. I know I haven't arrived far from it. Help me to experience you more and more every day. Give me that desire to know you greater. Surround us in this place, Lord. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with your spirit that we would know today I'm choosing to walk with Jesus. I'm choosing to give my Father my life back. Father, if there's things in our hearts that are contrary to your character, reveal them to us, Lord, that we may kick them to the curb. Show us, Lord, who we are without you. Give us that realization of just how much we need you in our life. Father, please be with my mom. Please win her. Please win those, Lord, that it seems are just unwinnable. Those friends and family members in our life that sometimes we forget, sometimes we think are hopeless, beyond reach. Father, I was beyond reach, and you saved me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. We love you. Help us to love you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org